Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy. Welcome back to another episode of The Fellow on Call. This, this today, we've got a very special guest with us. This is our first patient story episode. It's something that we're doing new, and it's actually one of my really good friends, Kaylee Leonard. She is currently a pulmonary critical care fellow at Vanderbilt. She's a second year fellow now. And one thing we, we decided to do is we're in our breast cancer series and she wants to talk about her journey through breast cancer. So Kaylee, I'm gonna have you introduce yourself. Where are you from and, and give us one fun fact. Sounds good. Thanks so much for having me. So I am from the Chicago area. I went down to Emory for undergrad and then back up to Chicago at Rush for medical school. And then I came down to Vanderbilt for my internal medicine residency and now pulmonary critical care fellowship. And a fun fact is my husband and I are trying to go to all of the national parks and we have hit 21 so far. Very, very impressive. I mean, the crazy thing about you guys too is you you take the car, right? And you camp out in the car, which is pretty cool. Yeah, we've camped at most of those. And the other thing I have to tell everybody, so Kaylee played college soccer. She's going to hate that I'm doing this, but she played college soccer and then as a hobby decided she wanted to join the track team and then became an All-American. So Kaylee, can you tell us about that adventure? I guess as a pre-med in college, I didn't think I had enough things to do. So with soccer, I just really wanted to run as well. And so I walked onto the track team and it was an amazing experience. Yeah. I remember when I heard about that. So she and my wife were co-chiefs together, co-chief residents in the internal medicine residency program. And I was just you know, I'm like, this makes sense. It's Kaylee. I mean, just kind of did a little hobby on the side and just happened to do very well at it while she was there. But so let's get started. This is, and listeners, really what we're trying to do here is allow Kaylee to tell us her journey, her experiences, and we don't really have a set script. We're just going to see where this goes and, you know, we're going to take it slow. So Kaylee, this is probably one of the toughest things. I remember you were diagnosed, and I can't remember how long ago it's been now, but you know, several months ago. And I remember when you saw you had the biopsy, you'd felt the breast lump, had the biopsy, and you saw the path report and you called me. And I remember you were talking to Christine, my wife, and then talking to me, and you said, you know, and I just to lighten the mood a little bit, you're like, why don't you have a podcast episode about this yet? And you know, that's what we did later. So that was the next series we did. I'm like, okay, we're doing breast cancer now. That's definitely what we're doing. But you saw this path report and your whole world flipped. So I just wanted to get a sense from you. So what was happening? What was going through your head? As you mentioned, I, I found my own breast lump, uh, was 31 and I thought it was a fibroadenoma. As a physician, you tend to try to diagnose yourself and try to, you know, make yourself feel better. And I, that's what I kept telling myself. And I finally got my ultrasound and my mammogram three months after I had found the breast lump. And when I got my mammogram results from the radiologist, after they had read it, they immediately told me that they wanted to have a biopsy. And that for some reason didn't sort of send off alarm bells in my head. I just thought, oh, they're just trying to be safe. But then when I saw the radiology report after that said BIRADS 4, I think that's when I knew. And so going into the biopsy, I it was a bit surreal. I was really worried that it was cancer, but 
I think I was still holding out hope. <laughs> it was benign. And then when I, I got an email on my phone and I was at work, I was actually in noon conference and I had a new result in my patient portal and I knew what it was going to be, but I didn't want to wait, even though I was in the middle of my work day. And so I went outside to try to open it on my own. And of course it was the noon hour and there are people everywhere out in the courtyard. And so when I was opened it up and I read it, I felt really like you were dreaming in a way, like, am I understanding the words that are in front of me and trying to process. And I know what invasive mammary carcinoma means, but trying to use my physician brain and my, you know, me as a patient and try to put that together, that that's me was really surreal. And my husband was working in the emergency room at the time when I got that email and he wasn't able to come join me, but my program director, who's absolutely amazing, was able to come out and sit with me as we sort of talked it through it. And I had her read my pathology report just to confirm that I wasn't going crazy. And just thinking about if I wasn't a physician and I didn't understand what those words meant and what all the other things on that pathology report, you know, estrogen receptor positive, you know, progesterone receptive positive and KI 67. Like, I don't know how a patient who doesn't have any medical knowledge would be able to figure out what that means. They'd be Googling things like crazy, but I was super fortunate to have the support of my husband and my program director and you and your wife. Like once I got home, you guys are my next phone call because I needed someone to walk through that path report with me. And if I didn't have you, then I would be waiting until I finally got my oncologist visit to kind of walk through those things. So, you know, this is probably the hardest thing that somebody will ever go through. And it's really interesting when I was talking to you that day, I had told so many people at that point in fellowship that they, you know, you have a new diagnosis of cancer or in residency, but it was just, it was something different when I was talking to you. And it really made me just take a step back and think, what's it like when somebody is at home and they see this path report and they just have to wait. You just have all of this time. And, and even if we tell somebody, hey, this is what you have, you, all of the thoughts that just must be circling through your head and just thinking about, you know, what am I going to do next? What's the next step? And so for you, you got an appointment with an oncologist. Just wanted to get a sense from you because we do this all the time. We see a new patient and we have our spiel, right? All of us have our own little spiel about how we talk to patients. And a lot of the breast oncologists, honestly, are some of the best at doing this, in my opinion, in, in our field. And how was that process for you? And if you could tell a patient or if you could tell a fellow, just what advice would you give the patient? What advice would you give the fellow? And how was your experience? I would say I'm super fortunate. I was able to get an appointment very quickly and my husband was able to go with me. And I had a notebook, like I was going to take notes and I had like written out the questions that I wanted to ask ahead of time. Because when you're in that visit, your mind might go totally blank and you might forget all the things that you want to ask. And so I had written out all the things I wanted to ask ahead of time. And then I made my husband take the notes for me uh, so that I could just focus on what my oncologist was saying. And I thought that was really helpful and I've actually given that advice to some patients after 
I've diagnosed them with lung cancer to bring your support. If you can write your note, like write your questions down and, and have them take notes for you because you are so overwhelmed and you have so many questions that you should just be focusing on the visit with your oncologist. I think you alluded to this, like wanting to know the plan or wanting to, you know, figure out what the next steps are, I think is super important that I understand that I still needed to get my MRI and my genetic testing and I needed to get my surgery and to know officially what my oncology plan was, but it was so important to me to know what are the different possible avenues that this could go. I know that there was a special asterisk on all of the things that were said that day because it depended on what my surgical path was, but it's still helpful to know what the timeline and what the next steps could be and what that would look like. Because I think one of the hardest things about being diagnosed with cancer is not knowing what to do about it and having to call and tell your parents that you have cancer and you don't know what's next is one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. And so it was really hard to tell other people too. But once I got my plan and I knew the next steps, it was so much easier to tell people because you could say, I have this diagnosis of breast cancer, but this is what's going to happen next. And this is what the plan is. And I, I think that that was the most helpful thing out of that visit was just sort of t- discussing different options and sort of what the recommendations were and also kind of knowing what the next couple weeks months and years were going to look like for me, which is very important, especially for a hormone positive breast cancer, because we're not just talking about your active treatment. We're talking about years of hormone blocking medications and knowing from day one, what that was going to look like was good to kind of just get it all out there rather than have surprises later. That being said, if a patient is very overwhelmed and they don't want all that information, I think that's okay too. So sort of asking the patient where they're at, do they have any prior knowledge or experience going into it, what they want to hear and know about at the beginning of the visit, I think is, can also be helpful. And then, you know, as a young adult with cancer, I think talking about fertility at the first visit is super important. And I wanted to touch base on a couple of things you said, because it really resonated with me in that you know, gauging the patient themselves. What do you want to know? You know, how much of this? And for many people, it's that, hey, I I just want to know what the next steps are. And even after that, I don't want any unknowns. I just want to know what the options are. I don't need the specific details per se. I just need to know where we're at and where we're going. And I think that's critically important. And asking, just taking that second to ask the patient, you know, pausing, just asking, you know, what have you read about this? Where are you at? You know, what do you want to know? And I think that's really important. And when we do this, there's no one right way of doing it, and there's no one wrong way of doing it. And it's really important to personalize that to the patient that you're seeing. I just thought of one more thing that actually makes me smile in a way that I think it's so important to be explicit, even if it sounds obvious to you. My oncologist is absolutely wonderful, and she walked through all of this my first visit and at the end of the visit, my husband turns to her and goes, so are we going for a cure? And to her, that was probably the most obvious thing in the world. And my husband's also a physician, but he just needed her to say that, yes, this is what we're going to do. 
and our goal is for cure. And just saying that out loud and being explicit, especially when people are so overwhelmed and upset, I think it can be helpful too. Yeah, definitely. And that I've noticed, I think I talked to you shortly after that, or maybe a couple of weeks after that. I remember you telling me all about this. And for me, it's also so important that if you've got that support system to just, you know, it's almost like we should tell our patients before they see us, Hey, just write your questions down first and bring a notebook. It's almost, it should be one of those required things. I know we make them fill out this ridiculous survey that's like, have you tried? I mean, there's probably some, you know, did you travel to another country? Have you had a fever in the last three days? But it, maybe we should say, just bring a notebook and we're here for you and we're going to walk through this with you. One other thing that you mentioned there was about fertility. And for us as, you know, whether you're a fellow or whether you're an attending and our listeners span the whole gamut, it's how do we talk about this and how do we normalize it? And to be honest with you, I don't think we talk about it enough. And I wanted to get your perspective on this. Can you tell me about your experience having that discussion of fertility? And what are some of the things that you wish you would have known going into it? And if you had any recommendations again for providers or just, you know, from your experience. So I think that I have always wanted to have kids and I don't have any children currently. And that conversation was never going to be easy. And I was never going to enjoy that conversation. I think it was the hardest thing about my first visit was talking about that. It's bad enough that you have cancer, but having something that's going to affect your potential future fertility and when and how you can have children is super upsetting. So, you know, my oncologist started by asking me, you know, what my plans were for having children. And since I mentioned that I was going or hoping to, that sort of led her into talking about the different potential options. But I will also say I've had other friends who weren't planning on having kids, but it was still a potential option for them in the future. And they should also hear all of the options and what that all looks like because people can always change their mind. And if they are of childbearing age, I think it's important to address it and know what those different things are. And then I also think that, you know, it's sort of like a a menu of options and not one size fits all. And so sort of laying that out, I think is helpful. Talking about if there's any medications and or chemotherapy that they are going to take that affects their ability to have kids or if it's safe in pregnancy and sort of addressing that so people can sort of know ahead of time uh, to thinking about whether they have recommendations of when you do have kids in relation to their treatment and medications. And then talking about sort of what different options are for IVF, surrogates, adoption, and also sort of leaving those out in answering any questions that people have. I didn't quite know all the ins and outs of IVF. It's not something I had had experience with in, in medical school and or in my training thus far. And so for me, I didn't even know what to expect. And so my oncologist told me like, even if you aren't sure that you want to do IVF, you should go and meet with them so that you can get all those questions answered. Because I had some assumptions that I had made about IVF that I just didn't actually know. And going and talking to a fertility specialist was helpful. You know, I ultimately decided to move forward and do IVF because of the potential 
of giving me another option of a way to have children in my future. Because I was told that you know, it might be harder for you to have kids. And then later on when I found it out I need needed chemotherapy, it was going to be even harder to have kids. And I'm so glad I decided to make that decision because in addition to having to worry about going through all of my treatments and whether or not I was going to be cured of my cancer, I no longer had to worry about whether or not it was going to be possible for me to have kids in the future. And so I'm very thankful that I decided to do that. Although I completely understand that that's not the decision that everybody would make, or it's not the right decision for everybody. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And one of the things I remember when you were going through this, because I learned so, I think some of the biggest important lessons I learned from fellowship was from you actually, which is, you know, I learned so much in fellowship, but but really it's actually getting to know somebody who's who's going through this journey, who is, you know, especially for you, we, you know, we train together, we have we're on rotations together and all those, you know, all those fun things. And one of the things that I thought was really hard for me, I had a lot of AYA patients that had Hodgkin lymphoma. And whenever I talked to them about fertility, I couldn't really give them the options of what options there are out there. And we don't get enough training on that. And it's really a big issue. And, you know, I, wa- I really want and encourage anyone who's listening to this to really look into it know what your local options are. If you're, no matter where you're at in your, in your training or your practice and keep track of that because you getting those options and knowing what the possibilities were was obviously very important and really meaningful for you going through the IVF process. I think we had dinner or something when you were going through it or something. I I can't remember exactly what it was. And I know this is tough, but do you mind talking about really just what the process entailed and you had to get a grant, I think, from the American Cancer Society. Can you just tell us a little bit about what that looks like? For IVF is not always well covered by insurance, and it really just depends on your insurance. My insurance covered you know, the visits with the physician and labs and ultrasounds, but they didn't fully cover the whole retrieval process and some of the lab fees afterwards. And so that was out of pocket. And so everybody's going to have, you know, some different coverage. After I decided to move forward with IVF, the next thing was the timing. So I had surgery first. And at that point, I didn't know that I need chemotherapy. And I decided to wait until after surgery to do my retrieval because I wanted to focus on getting the surgery first. But once I started moving forward with that process, you have to do up to two weeks of injections of hormone medications that my insurance didn't cover very well. And so there were a couple, you know, foundations that cover these medications for cancer patients, one of those being Livestrong. And so some of, I got most of my medications for free because I had to apply to get them covered. And there was this sort of scramble to get it done because I was on a timeline and so I did those injections and had in sort of intermittent labs and ultrasounds, and then eventually went in and had my egg retrieval after that, which is an outpatient procedure done under sort of moderate sedation. And then there's a few different options after that. As a you know woman, you can just freeze eggs if you want to. For men, obviously, you don't have to do the whole <laughs> hormone injection part, but you can still freeze sperm. And so you can sort of bank your own sperm for later. Or if you, you know, are, know who you'd like to be with and 
you can go ahead and make embryos and you can freeze embryos. And so that is what my husband and I opted to do to hopefully increase our success in the future. And so then we, you know, have our embryos stored and frozen and we pay a small monthly fee that is not covered by insurance to keep those embryos frozen. It's like your little Netflix subscription, right? It's daycare actually. Daycare. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. It's daycare. That's right. And you went through that whole process and it is not an easy process at all. I can't imagine all of the steps that you had to go through, that Dwayne had to go through, that you two together had to go through. And you mentioned this. So you know, we need to think about the cost for our patients. It's not just telling them, yeah, there's this fertility center, go over there. They're going to talk to you. Everything's going to be great. We need to have systems in place. And, you know, I'm glad that you found the right way to do this. And you're in a very intelligent, savvy person. And we need to keep in mind that not everybody has all the resources and has all of these things. And for us as oncologists, we need to be an advocate for our patients and really think about this. And you sharing that story is going to be really, really impactful for a lot of people. So you talked about this, that you had the surgery and they found a lymph node Mm -hmm. at the time of surgery. And then you surprise, you need chemotherapy after everything that you had gone through at that point. Can you tell me a little bit about the time that you met with your oncologist and she was going over the side effects of chemotherapy with you? How much of it? And I'm just curious how she did it. Did she, if you got a printout of all this stuff and if that's even helpful and how it happened and how you wish it were different, or if you could go through it again or give some patient recommendation or us a recommendation, what would you say? So I think that the breast center that I go to is fantastic at this. So after my pathology came back from my surgery, I got a call from my surgeon who, you know, obviously said, good news, your tumor margins are negative, bad news. You have one positive lymph node, which all of us were surprised by. And she kind of fired the warning shot. I'm not your oncologist, but this might mean that we would recommend chemotherapy. And so I I knew going in. And then the next day I got a call from the oncologist's office saying, hey, your path is back. Let's come and meet and talk about next steps. And when I got in, she sort of talked about the different potential options for chemotherapy and why she was recommending one and recognizing that there is some benefit in the research, but it's not foolproof or we don't know how helpful it will be, but there's been enough evidence that she would still recommend it for X, Y, Z reason. And I think her sort of walking through that with me made me feel more comfortable that it was the the right decision, you know, telling me there's all these different options. I'm choosing this one for you because of X, Y, Z. And then after that, I met with the pharmacist in the clinic who went through the specific chemo regimen that I was going to get and the sort of side effects with that. So I had sort of a separate appointment that we spent, you know, 30 minutes going through all that stuff. And I was given like a multiple pamphlets of information. I think that giving people handouts is helpful because one, they can't remember everything. Two, they can't take notes on absolutely everything. <laughs> and, you know, you're even if even so you're going to forget and it's a good place to go and reference. And it also keeps you from like going to Google or, you know, up to date and doing it yourself. So I think it was helpful because something I decided early on in my treatment is I wasn't going to be my own physician. I trusted my oncologist and my team and I was going to, you know, ask good questions and try to learn, but ultimately rely on their expertise. And I think that was really helpful there. And then after even that, 
they have a like chemotherapy class that is uh, run through the infusion center that one of the infusion clinic nurses runs and it's specific to breast cancer. I think they do other ones for other types of cancers and chemotherapies, but the one I was with, it was just uh, women with breast cancer. And they actually went through all the different side effects that you might deal with in ways like things to do for them, medications to take, when to call. And, you know, you could find out things that I had never thought of as a physician that maybe while you're going through chemotherapy, you probably shouldn't shave because you could cut yourself and get an infection. And that's something I had never even thought about. And so I think it was sort of helpful to have multiple points of contact for the chemotherapy side effects and what to expect. Definitely. And I think that for me, and and it's so hard is that we only have so much time when, you know, you're seeing the oncologist and like you said, and one of the things that, that you mentioned was the trust that you had. And really we need to work on building that trust with our patients. And one way to do that is what you, exactly what you said. This is why I'm choosing it. Not just saying this is the guideline. This is how we do it. You need chemo saying, here's how we do it. Here's what happens if we don't give it. Here's the benefit, you know, and it's a personalized decision. It always is. And we shouldn't necessarily say you must do one thing or another. There's a lot of different ways of doing things and a lot of things that are better for other people, right? I mean, there's no one size fits all to all of this. The pharmacists are amazing. Nurses are incredible. The whole team in oncology really makes this work. And it's really good to know that from, we don't always see the other people who we know are doing most of the work, (laughs) the nurses, pharmacists, all the support staff, uh, you know, everybody. And, you know, you leave the appointment with the oncologist and then everything, suddenly the patient is fine and this is why. And I think it's really, it's just awesome hearing that that is how you felt about it. So getting to chemo, one of the things, and I always go back to things that are just conversations were because they really did change my outlook on a lot of chemotherapy and oncology. You asked me about cold caps and I had never heard of a cold cap before you asked that question, truly. I had sort of heard about it. So I'd heard about it. But I didn't really know anything about it because you don't go to Hemonc lecture and they're like, yeah, let's talk about cold caps today, you know, and you're in breast clinic and it may come up here and there, but for the most part, a lot of oncologists don't bring it up, honestly. And I'm curious, one, so you did the cold caps and I want everyone to know Kaylee did not lose her hair. Pretty incredible. Two, did your oncologist bring it up or did you look into it? And then just tell me about what that was what the experience was like and what you had to do. So on that visit where we talked about uh, chemotherapy, she herself brought it up to me. And I, as a physician, internal medicine physician, had never heard of cold caps. And I was a little taken aback by that. And I, I must say I was a bit skeptical. I was like, that doesn't sound like that really works. Basically, it is an ice pack for your head that sort of helps reduce the blood flow and helps your hair follicles go, go dormant. And the goal is to reduce your hair loss during uh, chemotherapy. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense. That isn't going to work. Insurance doesn't cover this. It's a scam, which, you know, she said, I have seen patients who got this type of chemotherapy and it's worked for them. So something to think about. And at that point I had already decided, uh, you know, I'm just going to shave my head and it'll be fine. But then the more I thought about it, if I didn't have to lose my hair, I didn't want to. And so I then proceeded to ask the pharmacist about cold caps and then the infusion nurse about cold caps and, you know, did some research online. And there are studies, not a ton of them, but there are 
are studies that you know support the use of them in in particular types of chemotherapy. And it seems that the breast population is the the most well studied. So unfortunately, our infusion clinic at the time didn't have a machine that would hook up to the cold caps because that's there's one company that will do that. Now one of the infusion clinics does have it, which I think is amazing. So I had to pay to rent them from a company. And then my we had to get dry ice and we had to keep them very cold. And then during my chemo day for an hour before, throughout my chemo infusion and for four hours after, my husband had to change the caps in and out every 25 minutes to keep my head cold enough. And it is like the worst brain freeze that you've ever had in your life that lasts multiple hours. So it's not a fun experience. And it's an incredible amount of work if you're having to change them out. So I talked to some women who wanted to do cold caps, but then couldn't because they couldn't ask their older mother to do this for them or didn't have a consistent person to go with them for chemo. And so that was just not an option for them. Whereas if the infusion clinic had that resource there, it would be more accessible for so many women. And it is a lot of work during the chemo day. You're supposed to wash your hair on cold water, which I did for four months <laughs> and, you know, did all these special things. My hair did shed more than usual. It did thin out, but I still have hair and I get to look in the mirror or go out in public and still look like myself and not look like a cancer patient. And so that was has been truly a blessing, which I have a lot of thanks for my oncologist and for my husband for making it happen. That was probably the coolest thing that I saw is when I saw you after chemo. And I was just assuming, because you didn't tell me that you that you hadn't lost your hair. And then I saw you and you're just like, check out my head. I turned you into a believer. I know you truly did. And I really want to bring this up because quality of life for patients is one of the most important things. And we talk about new therapies. We need to push the field in that way, but we also need to push the field in quality of life, focus on what matters to the patient. You know, even things like thinking about when you're on chemotherapy and you're shaving your legs, and you nick yourself. Those are things that we don't think about a lot, but that we need to be more conscientious of. But losing your hair and looking, like you said, feeling normal, I'm assuming is, is one of the things that you were thinking there, where you don't have all of your hair gone, that you still have what is important to you and keeps your identity is so important and it worked for you. And I'm, we have a lot of smart people out there and maybe we need to come together and start pushing more for de-escalation, focusing on toxicity management, focusing on reducing toxicities in our patients. We're fortunate that we're at a point where we can really focus on that kind of thing. And I, my hope is that we push more for that, that after people hear this, that next time their patient talks about something that's not FDA approved or insurance approved to not just throw it to the side, to listen to them, hear it out, and really consider the pros and cons of that because it really is meaningful for people who are going through this chemotherapy, surgery, radiation, all the things that you have to go through. I know we've talked a lot of time, but there's a couple more things I wanted to touch on. One of the things that I don't think that we have a good grasp of and I know is different for everybody is how does this affect your social life and your psychosocial life that you go from this all-American track runner, chief resident, all of these things? I know you hate me saying that, but I have to say it. All of these amazing things, soccer athlete, you know, all these things, right? And 
then you have this and you're sitting at home and you've lost control, right? How did that go for you? And just want to hear your story. That was another really tough part of this was not being able to work while I was recovering from surgery, going from I'm a physician taking care of patients to now other people have to take care of me. There's a a shame that comes with a cancer diagnosis that is not rational, but you don't want to tell people because you don't want them to look at you differently or think of you differently. And it's hard to kind of let people in. But once I was able to do that, I think, you know, things started to change for me and I was able to cope better. I think, you know, I started going to support groups. Gilda's Club is amazing. It's free sort of support groups and resources and for patients and families and caregivers of those who have cancer. And I went to a breast cancer support group and a young adults with cancer group. And being able to just talk to other people who are going through something similar as me was so helpful because I have amazingly supportive family and friends like you, but you haven't gone through cancer. And so it's so helpful to also, in addition to having that amazing support, be able to talk to somebody who knows exactly what you're going through and get their support as well and and ask those silly questions or cry or do, do whatever you need to do. And so I think that was huge for me, especially having to, to step away from work. I decided to not do clinical work while I was going through chemotherapy, which was really hard. I think working through chemotherapy is, is definitely a personal choice and also depending on the job you did. And I have an amazingly supportive program who allowed me to do that in co-fellows who covered for me, no questions asked. And I'm so thankful for them so that I had the time to recover and to go through my treatments. But it was hard. Like I spent a lot of time sitting at home, seeing my friends take amazing trips and have babies and continue to live their life where my life felt like it was on pause. And I was afraid to go and travel because I didn't want to get sick while I was immunocompromised. And I felt like, you know, I I was keeping my husband from (laughs) moving forward with his life too while he was sitting at home with me. And, you know, I I can't have kids right now and it'll be a few years and, and just sort of having to figure out my emotions with that, I think was really challenging. But again, like having the support groups. And then once I found a way to communicate and share my story, I think things got a lot better. I decided to use a resource called Caring Bridge, where it's like a blog for people who are going through like health things and it's free and you can just go and you can journal on there and tell your story and give updates. You can share it with as few or as many people as possible or make it as private or as public as you want. It's a way that you don't have to text every single person in your life updates every time there's a, you have a new round of chemo or that you want to celebrate being done with chemo. And it's a central way to share that information. And and that also made the process easier. It probably for me thinking about just hearing what you just said, that I wish I did more in oncology is giving patients more guidance on some of these resources. Honestly, for me, it's so hard to even know. I just kind of say, oh yeah, you know, there's support groups out there. And then 
people will say, well, which blog should I use or which one of these should I use? And there's so many resources out there and it's really hard to know what's what and what are the advantages of each of these things. The blogging that you talked about is amazing. And after I had seen you do that and kind of see that, I've, I've told my patients about it. It has really helped a lot of people. It's one of those things that we need to, again, hear more of our patients like like what we're doing with you now and, and doing that in clinic and really getting a sense of, you know, what did, what did you use to, to get through this? And even having the conversations of, how are you doing? That must be, you know, I, how are things going? You know, just acknowledging that this is really hard. And even if you're not just worry about the side effects, but also worry about how are you doing? And, and I think that's really important. Kaylee, I think, you know, I've taken up a lot of your time right now. Any closing thoughts that you have? And, you know, you're doing so well right now. You're, you're back. Today you were saying that you were training people on how to do bronc, right? Something like that? That was yesterday. That was yesterday. Okay. And chest tubes too. Yes. Teaching um, the new fellows how to do chest tubes and do bronchoscopy. And you just went to Ireland, right? You just went to Ireland. So just any closing thoughts you've got? I just want to touch briefly on what you said about asking how you're doing and sort of having a potential resource or a place to send your patients if they aren't doing well. So know what those resources are in your institution or in your area. I used a a free counseling service through work, which was really helpful in addition to going to the support groups. And then this is something that came up at my most recent oncology visit and actually my surgery follow-up. So I had my follow-up mammogram a little over a month ago, and I am officially cancer-free, which is- Amazing. <laughs> very exciting. Popping a bottle of champagne after this, so. Amazing. And, you know, talking to my surgeon and then my next visit the next week with my oncologist, they said, you know, you've been through so much this year. You've been through surgery, you've been through chemo and radiation, and you f- you've been fighting, you've been having tests, and you've been doing those things. And now you are in remission. That sometimes people think that, oh, everything's fine now. And you can just go back and live your life. But your life is never going to be the same, and you are never going to be the same. And sometimes people actually have worse mental health after they've gone through the treatment. And I talked to another woman whose husband went through treatment for testicular cancer, and she called it the post-cancer crash. You're so focused on beating it and doing the things you need to do and getting through your chemo and all these side effects that when the year's over or when your treatment's over, you're just exhausted. And it's like, you're not sure what's next. And now you just have to be anxious about your next scans and hoping it doesn't come back. And when you have a headache, remind yourself that it's probably not brain mets. And figuring out a way to navigate that as a young adult with cancer, and I, I, this, I assume this also applies to older patients with cancer, and that you know my on- oncologist in, referred me to the survivorship clinic. So I'll, I haven't gone yet, but I think that you know having different resources for people for after too, I think is is important. So I appreciate all that you have done for me as my friend. I am so honored (laughs) when you said that you have learned so much from my experience and that you have talked to your patients and treated your patients differently because of me, because that just, if something good can come out of this really tough year, then maybe it was worth it that my experience can help other people. 
Absolutely. And I think your experience is going to help a lot more people. You know, when we, we're going to post this and it's, it's during our breast cancer series and people are going to hear that, Hey, there's so many elements to this that we focus on the data. We focus on the research. We focus on what's the next treatment step. How do we deal with the medicine? But this stuff is the most important part of what we do. And the survivorship is so critical. We think about ringing the bell and yay, everybody's happy. And, and, you know, for me, I'm, I just recently told a patient of mine, they had gotten CAR T therapy and in, in lymphoma. And I was telling them, this is amazing. You're in remission. Everything's great. And I honestly wasn't thinking about this idea of this post-cancer crash. And I know that it exists, but it, it's so hard to go back to that when we've gone through this huge journey but it's really so important to remember that. I love the way that that's kind of your last point of so many amazing points that you've done here. So Kaylee, thank you so much for being here. Uh, really appreciate it. And just so happy that we could do this and that we're going to pop a bottle of champagne, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. All right, everybody. That's Kaylee Leonard, All-American Athlete. I have to say that one more time. Now, Pulmonary Critical Care Fellow. She's going to change the world. All right. For all of our listeners, we'll see you next time. We'll get back to our, our usual content in our next episode. Everybody take care.